0: You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Stephen Hicks. Please note that this episode was recorded before the COVID-19 crisis.
1: Stephen Hicks, welcome to Australia and welcome to Conversations. Uh, You have quite a story to tell. You're Professor of Philosophy at Rockford University in Illinois, Mm. the Executive Director of the Centre for Ethics and Entrepreneurship, uh, Senior Scholar at the Atlas Society. You've written four books. And you've emerged as one of the world's leading critics of postmodernism, and also of the state of free speech in our universities. You've also uh, I think very interestingly studied the relationships between uh, the idea of Nietzsche and the rise of Nazism which is still something we ought to learn a lot from but perhaps don't. Talking of learning, you're actually a native of Canada and we're in Australia. Both of us have been the lucky recipients of a lot of good ideas that were fought out over a long time that have produced, I think we'd both agree, very free societies that are great to live in. Do you think we understand that history well enough now to be able to preserve it? Uh, so it's a yeah, history
0: education and a philosophy education. But no, you're right. In uh, the Early 21st century, we live in astonishing times for, for human beings the prosperity, and we, we take it for granted, uh, the lifespans, the, the lack of pain, but also that sense uh, that also is quite unique in human history that when problems arise, we can solve them, we can figure them out, and we can make progress, that's, that's very rare. So uh, you know, as residents of Canada and and, uh, and Australia, yeah, we, uh, we inherited a tradition that made all of that possible. So, we don't, though, do a good job of communicating in education what all of that depends on. So, all of the uh, the uh, worries about the state of history education, and of course, our battles over history, are 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 genuinely uh, well felt, felt and well articulated. So. Uh, It doesn't come from nowhere. It's not magic. Uh, All of those ideas had to be discovered and debated and articulated. And there are uh, often appealing ideas from other perspectives that are out there. And every generation does have to go through that same cultural learning process. And so right now uh, we're not doing a good job at that. And that's why some of our leading important institutions are being undermined.
1: I think it's probably true to say that the very great bulk of us sort of, uh, particularly in this country, 70%, 80% of people mm. get on with their lives. They think basically uh, Australia's a pretty good place, even if we're a bit concerned about our unity and uh, there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress. You can't get away from that. The research shows it. But they watch this sort of game uh, of intellectual sort of ping pong going on over their heads, left versus right, and it seems to me culturally at the moment what we might have once called the left, I don't know where that label works anymore, they seem to have the louder megaphones mm. and it does also seem to me that social media has enabled them to use those megaphones in pretty powerful ways. Mm.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I'm not too happy with left versus right labels. I think the intellectual and the political landscape is shifting. Yeah. And it's much more nuanced than that. But uh, as journalistic starting points, that's, that's fine. Uh, I accept that. But yep. yes. Uh, but certainly the average person, they, uh, they have a full work life, they have a full family life, they want to enjoy art and movies, right, and so on. And they do recognize that they need to keep up on what the issues are. Uh, but there is a division of labor culturally, and so they monitor what the intellectuals are doing, and so they plug in at various levels of understanding and commitment and, uh, and interest. And you're right. I think uh, part of the complacency uh, uh, on the right and among the liberals, among the libertarians, uh, uh, is is starting to uh, to catch up with them. So the big battle, for example, in the 20th century, the the Cold War, not only the the economic battle and the geopolitical battle militarily, but also the intellectual and the moral battle, that was won. And I think after that, there was a strong sense among people who believed genuinely in democratic republicanism and free speech and a kind of a culture of tolerance and individual rights. They thought we've won. But what happened in the 90s and and the early 2000s is Particularly among the far left that was really feeling beaten up on both ideologically and in terms of what had happened politically they re-strategized they did get their act together and uh, They're doing a much better job over the last generation of getting the message out now the social media tools is a part of that and uh, you know who Who's the first mover in that case uh, can have obviously huge leverage point, but uh, I'm not Pessimistic. I think the uh, the people who are genuinely concerned with uh, kind of liberal civilizational values are recognizing that they have a battle on their hands. So I think over the course of the next generation, things
1: will improve. It'll be ugly, but it will improve. Well, you, uh, you you're very familiar with the academic scene in America, yeah. and it's probably much the same in the West. One of the things that strikes me though is that this battle royal has reached fever pitch in the. English speaking world mm-hmm. the places that are basically deprived, derived from great britain with the mother of parliaments and in many ways uh, a place that became a high watermark for civilized behavior mm-hmm. and respectful debate mm-hmm. why is it that the english speaking world seems to be the place where these battles are most fiercely fought today Yeah. or am i wrong right.
0: no i think though i think that's that's right and i think partly it's a it's a product of having a wealthy society because if you have a wealthy society then you will attract the best intellectuals and you'll be able to afford to buy the best intellectuals part of it will be a, a historical reason that the big disasters in 20th century politics happen primarily in europe the disasters of communism or international socialism those are European exports, national socialism another European battle and but what happened then was that the the intellectuals and cultural activists they got out of those places largely and they went then to the west but they brought their cultural heritage with them i think it's also uh not accidental that it happens in those places because those are the civilizations that have the most tradition of tolerating eccentrics tolerating the expression of any idea, uh, and a, a culture of debate, right, traditionally. So you would expect then, if you've got the brightest intellectuals from all over the world, and you've got a lot of money, and you are you have a culture that encourages people to put any idea out there and debate it vigorously, that that's where the fireworks are most going to happen. So
1: there we are. But that immediately brings us to the point of the, the great debate about free speech, which you've written a lot yes, about. Yes, that's right. Does that mean that somehow or other because they're able to argue their case passionately, uh, they've won because they're right? Our universities seem very monochrome in their views now. If there's this clash of ideas that we've encouraged, why is it that one set of ideas, which might be broadly defined, I suppose, as this sort of emergence of postmodernism or of identity politics on the back of postmodernism, would that be the way to put it? Why is it that the universities seem to be now almost hotbeds of conformity. All right,
0: yeah. Well, I think there's a two-step argument that has to be developed there. And my home field of philosophy, I think, is the the problem. What happened is, uh, during the Enlightenment era, uh, the birth of modern science and the, the, the optimism that we can solve problems, that we can uh, have a Democratic-Republican system because most people are rational and they can learn and we can have these great public debates and the voters will most of the time get it right. And when they screw up, they will recognize that they've screwed up and in the next election, they'll change their minds. So all of that is underwritten by an enormous confidence in the power of reason, judgment, objectivity, and so forth. Uh, And that was a philosophical achievement of the 1700s and then the modern world comes out of that. But what had happened was uh, over the, uh, things happened obviously slowly in the academic conflict was a a counter reaction. And philosophy uh, as its arguments developed became increasingly skeptical, increasingly pessimistic about the power of reason. And so what happened by the time you get to the middle part of the 20th century was that philosophy was in a very skeptical place. Right? that we don't uh, have the ability to observe the world and get it correctly, that we're trapped in a subjective reality, that our concept- concepts and propositions and theories are largely arbitrary and socially subjective constructs. And to the extent that you have a, then a generation of philosophers, uh, and this is at the elite institutions, the leading philosophers who are saying, reason is not capable, right? then that opens a, a vacuum space because then you say, all right, well, if we're going to uh, come to formulate our beliefs and our values and act in the world, but it's not going to be on the basis of reason, what is it going to be on the basis of? And then you turn to much more subjectivist, irrationalist uh, uh, sources for those things, and that sets you up for a different kind of kind of debate. If you remember, free speech, and the principle of free speech, it depends on a couple of things. One is that you think uh, uh, individuals need to think for themselves and you want to give them space to think for themselves, to try out different ideas. Uh, But if you don't think that individuals are primaries or that individuals can think or that the result of thinking is that important, then you're not going to be that interested in training the individual's capacity for for thinking. But also a free speech culture is partly a social phenomenon that uh, uh, each of us has to think for ourselves, but we all start off with a limited amount of knowledge and my knowledge set or belief set uh, is partly overlapping with yours. I don't have a whole lock on the truth, but neither do you. I've got some falsehoods in my system. You've got some falsehoods in your system. So the idea then is that a competition or a contesting of our ideas will be a winnowing out process. And if I'm open to the good ideas that you have, right, and if I'm open to your criticism of my ideas, and so then we have in place an open-mindedness and a toleration then I think I'm going to be better off as a result of that it's gonna be a partly painful process because my ideas are going to be bruised I have to admit sometimes that I've made mistakes I have to engage in effort right and so on uh, and I might engage a certain amount of public uh, humiliation right when I say sorry I made a mistake I've changed my mind on this issue but a deep confidence that that social process is important uh, uh, underwrites. A commitment to free speech. But if you then say, this is a contesting process, but it's also cooperative. If you replace that with a a different philosophy that says, no, human beings are not engaged in a contesting cooperative process. We have a different understanding of human beings, uh, that people are not individuals who are seeking the truth and seeking values. Instead, what I see individuals as is really, uh, this is an overstatement, but bits of plasticine, right, or some sort of plastic substance that's born into a social context and it's molded by a social context and doesn't really have any agency of itself, then what you have is I'm just a vehicle for various social forces that are operating through me. And that you have come out of a different context, in some cases a very different context, and now we're segueing into identity politics. Right? And so neither of us is rational, instead we are just constructed by different social forces and those are contesting with with each other, but we have that skepticism. I don't have the power of reason. You don't have the power of reason. Instead, what we just have is a social contesting, and that's going to be nasty.
1: Is this what Jonathan Haidt talks about when he says that we're teaching our children to believe that life is a battle between good people and bad people?
0: Well, that's one aspect of it. Uh, yeah, that's, the, that's the values debate. But it's going to be broader than just values. It's going to be uh, our scientific theories, our, our understanding of technology right, and so forth. So all of the things that are, are, are not overtly normative are going to be constructed differently. So our religious beliefs, our scientific beliefs, as well as our our moral beliefs. So if you are a strong, what we call social constructionist, instead of a strong individualist, then you're going to have competing worldviews and colliding worldviews, but no social hope of resolution, at least not through peaceful means.
1: So to go back to history, it seems to me that you know, I'm no great scholar, I don't pretend to be, but as I try and understand the American Revolution and the, you know, Declaration of Independence, and the incredible intellectual thought that went into trying to work out how to maximise people's freedoms, that's sort of America's big thing, or has been, we're free people, and they defend freedom, and they've been on balance, I think, pretty powerful advocates for freedom. Absolutely. For a very, yeah. very long time. Yeah, great model for the world. Yeah, But as you you look at, say, the the Federalist Papers, I don't claim for a moment to have read them all, but many of them put together by Alexander Hamilton, he's grappling very deeply with how to, on the one hand, exalt the standing and recognise the dignity of the individual, but on the other hand, how to constrain, if you like, mob rule and chaos Mm. and to provide a framework. And, of course, you, you end up with a democratic model with its checks and its balances, its limitations on power, which is designed on the one hand if you like to reflect the dignity of the individual, but to reflect their capacity to fail, especially mm-hmm. collectively. Yes. But we've really moved away completely, haven't we, from that understanding that gave basis to those freedoms.
0: Mm. Well, uh, I don't think we've moved away completely from it. I think a sector of our intellectuals who are very prominent and have in power have moved away from that completely. No, but I think you're right. What we now call so- social psychology, uh, is an important understand, uh, part of understanding any successful politics. So we do know how individuals will behave as individuals. And it's very possible for an individual to be rational, decent, commonsensical, and so forth, but change to a different modus operandi when you put that individual in, in a group. And one of the big problems that we have is put people in a, in a group where other people seem to have an agenda, they seem to have a moral vision, then in many individuals will immediately start to suspend their own judgment and they will become conformists. they will follow along. Now, whether that is an inbuilt bias that we want to be part of the group, and it's very easy for our wanting to be part of the group to override our sense of individual moral responsibility or individual agency, or whether some people have that and they have been taught that well by their parents and by their teachers, and so they're able to resist it, but other people have not been taught so well. So whether it's native or learned is a side issue there, but the the political fact to be grappled with is that there always is in every generation a large number of people who will not function as rational, moral individuals in a group context. Uh, And so the possibility of mob rule certainly is there. Now, conformity also can happen in a vertical direction instead of a kind of a horizontal direction. There are a large number of people who seem to want uh, you know, thinking for yourself and taking responsibility for your life in all areas, that's a huge responsibility. And many people are comfortable with deferring that responsibility to authority figures in various aspects of their life. And that's another problem that uh, you know, Democratic-Republican institutions have to grapple with because we're, uh, in many cases, willing to defer power to government agents, uh, agencies in the short term, but then Government agencies, being what they are, they never give it back, or they don't want to give it back very easily, and so you end up with an increasingly elitist right, operation. And in many cases, people are are fine with that. So, uh, yes, how the American political model with its checks and balances—I think it's trying to uh, retain the individual freedom as well as guard against those two kinds of conformity.
1: Yeah, there's an interesting comment uh, that I. Uh, perspective, I think, to be had in that comment you made about people almost outsourcing their decision-making, and their conscience yeah, even, yeah. to uh, institutions, uh, whether it's government or their agencies.
0: Yeah, outsourcing, at... is a good word there. <laughs>
1: outsourcing is a good word there. Sorry? Outsourcing is a good word there. But, but the, it, the irony of it is it comes at a time when we're, we've we never been so distrustful of government and its mm. agencies. We're very distrustful. Yeah. So what are we putting our confidence in? But to revert back to what? this uh, thing you raised of identity politics, one of my guests, Peter Baldwin, a very thoughtful Australian, who was, uh, would have identified, and I accept your point about not wanting to use those old labels, they're largely out of date, but he would have described himself as a member of the sort of proud left. I don't think I'm putting words in his mouth. Uh, and his goals, I think, as, as a member of the left, I've always seen as noble, even if I vehemently disagreed with the left wanted to get there but he would have said and he did say in one of these conversations that there was when he was a left-wing member of the labour party in australia his goal was universalism so if you've got marginalized people if you've got people who are doing it tough or not being treated fairly the idea is to elevate them up into family australia yes into the community but now in the name of identity politics uh, we're, we're sort of creating a new aristocracy usually based on victimhood. Even if the person doesn't see themselves as a victim, they're painted as victims and 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 so instead of universalism, we're almost creating in the name of identity politics, a new set of aristocratic groupings who have to be accorded you know special attention yeah so you're, How do we you're, understand yeah. identity politics a bit better yeah uh, I think there's
0: two dimensions packed into your Question there. That's that's exactly right about the left. Right, one thing is that the older left tradition has been universalistic That we're all human beings. We all have the same fundamental values. We want to live a good meaningful life uh, And then the question socially is how do we make it possible? What's the cultural and political infrastructure going to be so that all human beings can live the best human life and then left and right and so forth? Have a different set of values at some level, but also a different understanding of what institutions are are going to get people there. That was largely abandoned in the 1960s in the left, for philosophical reasons that they stopped believing that there is a single human nature; that there are human natures plural, constructed by different groups. Uh, and so what we have to understand is men and women to some extent are different the races are different, the ethnicities are different and so forth and getting away from that Marxist per, per, uh, as, a, as a key example you know the, the workers of the world are united in their humanity and they have one set of economic interests that need to be realized. the left became much more plural and a certain kind of multiculturalism then came out of that. So that's one issue. Now the other issue that is uh, this is comes to the the victim issue here is are we trying to raise those who we think are dispossessed or underprivileged or in a weaker position to the, what we take to be the normal Australian or or or, or western or human standing? Uh, or do we have another agenda at work? And this is a very interesting thing about the history of left. and i I, and I think there are different species of leftists here. Are you more interested genuinely in helping the poor and the weak and the dispossessed get better? Or are you really interested in bringing down the the rich and the powerful? So are you animated more by destruction and, and resentment and envy? And that has been a powerful left tradition, or are you actually motivated by compassion for the underprivileged. So I think what has happened here is that uh, the left has gone through various metamorphoses. In the first uh, century and a half or so of modern leftism, you had both sides. I mean, Even John Stuart Mill and Friedrich Nietzsche, both of whom were critical of the left, were going out of their way to say, if you really want to know what hatred and envy and resentment look like, look at the far leftists and that's back in the 19th century but at the same time to be fair to the left there are any number of them George Orwell and others among them who have been genuinely motivated by poverty is not the normal human condition damn it, we should be able to solve this as a society. So I think both of those motivations are there. What I think though has happened in the modern left, and I'm much less sympathetic to leftists of the last half century or so, is that the left has widely come around to agree that look, they used to think that socialism was going to outstrip capitalism in productivity uh, and that capitalism is ultimately going to generate uh, poverty and despair and, and, and immiseration. And they just had to abandon that argument because you know, free market capitalism, uh, if anyone has a shred of intellectual honesty about them, has been the greatest boon to human beings ever. Uh, lifting billions of people out of poverty, extending lifestyles and so forth. There is no debate. I don't think there's actually any honest debate that if you want to have economic prosperity, you need to have some sort of a market economy. And even the far left has recognized that. So the leftists who were then in a position of genuinely being motivated, I want to raise the poor out of poverty. The honest thing then for them to do is to say, all right, I have to convert to some sort of market liberalism and a significant number of them did they repackaged themselves as centrist some went over to uh, to capitalism and so forth but what you're then left with though is the resenters the ones who are not actually motivated by that what they are uh, interested in is know, for whatever reason i just hate rich people right i hate powerful people and I don't want to get too psychological in this because, uh, you know, you have to know someone very well to make these sorts of accusations, but we do, uh, I do know a certain number of people personally, you see this in the writings of the leftists when they are uh, writing more autobiographically about what, uh, what motivates them. And a lot of it is not sympathy for the poor. It's just hatred, resentment, and envy for those who you think are, are doing a lot better and they just get a pleasure out of seeing those people brought down a peg. So the resentment left and, uh, uh, and so forth, I think is a, is a powerful animating force. From their perspective, the people who are on the losing end of various cultural battles, who are, are, are dispossessed, right, and so forth, I think they are just being used tactically as pawns. That's not what's really going on.
1: So that's, that's fascinating. There's a really interesting set of insights. Would it be fair to say then that in that context, traditionally Marxists, people committed to communism, really believed the revolution would come, the workers would make it happen, Uh, we'd move into a new nirvana where people gave their loyalty to the party and the state. Uh, That collapsed, it became an unacceptable view for all sorts of reasons, many of which you've just touched on. But then you had this sort of rise out of the ashes that says, well, the workers are not bringing the revolution on. So we've got to attack the institutions of the West mm. in order to bring it down. And then these um, if you, if you people motivated by resentment, by loathing and distrust of well-being, some of whom, let's face it, have just been damaged by terrible experiences. Mm. Underneath it all are probably people who would like to break free, uh, I suspect. But nonetheless, they're consumed by this loathing and hatred. And, it's more about just smashing what we have rather than having an alternate vision for a better way to live.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, know, you don't have to go to politics to see this. You can see this in many other walks of life. You know, If you have set some great goals for yourself as a young person and uh, then you didn't take the leap, you didn't go for it, right? but then you see other people who went for it and they made it. How do you think about yourself yeah. when you get into your 30s and your 40s? That's a that's a real psychological type, independent of politics. But of course, uh, another variation on of that is that you did go for it. You went, you sought your dream in Hollywood and Broadway or in uh, in business or whatever, but you failed. And you had to go back home with your tail between the, your legs uh, to or whatever you thought you were escaping from. And then uh, you realize the rest of your life, you're going to be a mediocrity. How do you feel when you see other people out there succeeding in their dreams? That is a real psychological problem. So uh, people who uh, suffer from failures of courage or just genuine failure, but they don't pick themselves up and try again, there is going to be a political manifestation of that and and, and resentment politics is a, is a real phenomenon. Now I though follow the philosophical developments more. And another thing here is it's a cognitive failure that if you're an intellectual and you're genuinely motivated by truth seeking, then one of the things that you have to do is be willing to say, I have a hypothesis and I'm going to put it to the empirical test. And when it fails the empirical test, I am going to modify my hypothesis and in more extreme cases, abandon my hypothesis hypothesis. And this is not a resentment issue, but another kind of psychological problem that human beings can have. It's very hard for people to admit that they have made a mistake. And it's an unforgivable sin among intellectuals, but a huge number of intellectuals do commit this sin on a fairly regular basis. Uh, They commit to a certain belief system when they're 18 or 20. They know that they're pretty smart and they make a very strong commitment and truth comes to shove, they're not going to change their minds On on those fundamentals no matter what the empirical evidence is but because they're clever they always find ways to modify double down triple down and so forth their hypothesis so to to preserve their image and this is uh, uh, you know a psychological uh, uh, explanation out of but to preserve your image as a smart person who has a has a lock on the truth that's a real phenomenon and it's also independent of politics but if you're committed to a political viewpoint when you're a young person and you're not ever going to change your mind, then you'll just get increasingly sophisticated iterations of that, that goes on. So uh, what we have had then in the left, and this is my unsympathetic reading of the left is, a huge number of young people who were motivated in the early part of the 20th century by socialism as a noble vision of the world but they really held it bottom line as a faith commitment and so when the empirical evidence piles up against it they're still not going to change it they're just going to find more clever strategies so the trendy labels for this you know frankfurt school cultural marxism postmodernism deconstruction and so forth so there's an indefinite number of variations, but I see them all as variations of people who want to simply double down on a failed theory.
1: A question that immediately arises out of that for me, and and one of the observations I'd make is that a lot of people who are very comfortable that are products of the university seem to make the same mistake. That somehow or other, um, very reluctant to not only admit they're wrong, but they're locked into positions that it seems to me they couldn't hold if they understood history. Mm. You plainly believe that history is a great guide. It can show us what's worked and what it hasn't. But we don't seem to... It's almost as though now, uh, somehow or other, no one who's gone before us had any real insights or wisdom.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, history education... I I do intellectual history, but the, the, the debasement of history education and the gutting of history is part and parcel of this process. Uh, If you're a skeptic or a relativist in your philosophical orientation, then immediately history is going to become less important. Because the idea of the, the, the Santayana phrase, that we need to learn from the lessons of history, otherwise we're going to repeat them, built into that is a kind of universalism, that human beings stay largely the same over the course of history, and that then you can see history as a kind of laboratory and you apply scientific method to history. And then you generalize to what the lesson is and the lesson will apply because to humans despite different cultural contexts there are general lessons that will apply. But if you are a skeptic and a relativist, you will think, well, now, all of these big, whopping generalizations that the historians want to come up with—well, we don't believe that that's possible because we're skeptical about the power of uh, empirical science applied to, to applied to history. And then, if we are relativistic, then we're going to say, no, no, no. Uh, people back then, or in that other part of the world, they were just so different. The differences vastly outweigh any residual human similarity. So whatever lessons you might be able to figure about the way things were done in the 16th century or the 4th century or whatever, they're not going to be applicable to our times because we are very different people and the times are very different. So on both scores, history goes out the window. Instead, what you will do is you will use history tactically. If there's an historical tidbit, that you think can support your ideological position, then you will trot that out. But there's no strategic use of history. And so as a result of that, um, uh, history education isn't going to happen, and then younger people aren't going to have the the, uh, the knowledge base in which to understand their
1: institutions. So we see in both Britain and America, young people, very attracted, turning out in large numbers to support very, very old men. Yeah. Old white men, well, <laughs> ironically, if I may say so, who are offering essentially socialistic um, right. solutions that have been tried and tried and tried again yeah. over the last 500 years and have never worked. Right, But there's no awareness of that.
0: That's right, and that, that is a big problem. Um, now, you know. It's easy to to be flippant. I mean, every younger generation, I know I was this way. We, we think that we are rediscovering everything right for ourselves, and that's fine. Okay, but there is a role for teachers and for parents to say, "History matters. Experience matters. Listen to your grandparents. Right? Pay attention in class." And we've dropped the ball largely on uh, on that particular project. But it is uh, you know, partly strategic on on the the part of those who want to destroy any cultures, institution. So if you are uh, a, a, an enemy of capitalism, well, then you don't want to teach the history of capitalism because the history of capitalism is a success story and you are opposed to that or you don't want to uh, teach any sort of uh, a uh, uh, history of science if you are opposed to science as
1: a, an imperialistic belief system and so forth. I was extraordinarily fortunate to go to the University of Sydney in the 1970s and study some history. And there was a man there whose uh, name was Bob Dreyer, I remember it well. Uh, and he confronted us. I have no idea to this day what his politics were. None, which is a good thing. But he confronted, as I understood it in my mind, with the reality that... Um, Western democratic capitalism had certainly given us a lot of freedoms, but it had also, if you like, Western thought, had produced two terrible aberrations: one on the left, if you like, one on the right—communism <laughs> and 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 and, and fascism—which yeah. uh, were very, very ugly, and which, for me, seemed to offer incredible lessons about the wisdom of staying true to the, you know, the classic Western understanding, I suppose you'd say, of human nature mm-hmm. and of the need to you know, manage your checks and balances, which I see as democracy. But you yourself have written about the dangers, I think, uh, or, or you plainly think we can learn a lot from uh, nature and other influences producing Nazism. hmm Yeah, absolutely. You see that
0: as valuable. Yeah, yeah. well first, kudos to your professor at the University of Sydney. You took a course from him and you didn't know what his politics was. Good for him. Yeah, no idea. My view on this is that uh, students in their first two years of university should be taught by professors and uh, at the end of their first two years they should have no idea what their professor's politics are. Uh, Because students in the first two years, they need to absorb a whole lot material, they need to be exposed to a wide variety of viewpoints. Now I think professors should have something to profess, but it's after you've gone through the initial legwork and so on, so one of the things that I can take a certain amount of pride is that I do know uh, half of my students think I'm a socialist, Uh, and the other half think that uh, I'm various other parts of the political spectrum. When they take more advanced courses with me, then they they come to know. But I think that is uh, uh, still what a large number of well-meaning professors will do. They are still genuinely committed to education as bad as many of the horror stories are coming out of, uh, out of uh, contemporary universities are. But that's what we need to to, to reinvigorate. Now you mentioned yes, Nietzsche and, uh, and the issue of the Nazis and what can we learn from uh, the 1920s, the Weimar Republic and the, the culture that then gave rise to, to the Nazis? Now yeah, one of the things is that uh, absolutely everybody needs to know something about, Nietzsche. He is the most important philosopher, uh, influence on an enormous variety of thinkers in the 20th century. Atheist and theist, far left, far right, centrist, you name it. Uh, Nietzsche has had an influence on those people. And uh, uh,
1: just just a little thing here that I would say, A, a very good friend of mine, a neighbor said, oh, you know, I mean, uh, people are sensible, we don't need to worry too much about history, they'll find their way right through. The point I just wanted to raise was I think what you're really saying here is an enormously influential thinker and you're about to sort of demonstrate that that had an enormous and terrible consequences right. played yeah. out, ideas... Right really matter. Yeah. That's just a sort of an injection from me. Well, yeah, that's going but, to be, that's uh,
0: that's one of the great themes of philosophy education and, and should be historical education that feeds into political education as well. So, you know, we think of John Locke and the American Revolution, and the lines are very clear there. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the French Revolution, the terrible third generation French revolutionaries were all disciples of Rousseau. Karl Marx, his PhD was in philosophy. He had a whole philosophical system and the communist revolutions. And now Nietzsche, and this is the provocative part, uh, and the connection to national socialism. Uh, Yet Nietzsche, absolutely important, but one of the uh, important uh, offshoots here is that all of the theoreticians of Nazism, and these were very well-educated Germans, PhDs from German universities in the early part of the 20th century. And those were the best universities in the world. These are very well-educated men uh, and a few women. Uh, and then even the, the Nazi party activists and politicians, Goebbels had a PhD, uh, Drew, Explicitly, right from Nietzsche, also from Karl Marx. Interestingly, Goebbels loved Karl Marx, <laughs> uh, and, he, and he wrote peons to uh, to uh, to Marxist economic thought as well. Hitler, in 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 his study at one of his uh, places, had a bust of, uh, of of the works of Friedrich Nietzsche there. When Mussolini came on a state visit, uh, gave him the collected works of Friedrich Nietzsche as a head of state to head of state gift and so forth. So the the striking thing then is that, and I think there's a legitimate position here from many uh, Nietzsche scholars and uh, from Nietzsche himself, it would say that they would be horrified by many of the things that the National Socialists did. But at the same time, the National Socialists thought themselves as disciples of not only Nietzsche, but significantly Nietzsche, and they were drawing on uh, on a large number of things there. Now, the important thing here is that Nietzsche is deeply an irrationalist. Mm -hmm. Uh, He is uh, 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 deeply a conflict model understanding of human beings, that uh, we become our best not by thinking about the world. And analyzing facts and being trying to be objective, he doesn't think that's possible. He thinks reason is a very superficial, Johnny Come Lately evolutionary phenomenon. But human beings are deeply instinctual beings, and that what you need to do is channel your instinctual uh, 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 drives, and it's out of that that the best artistic creativity and uh, and including political activism and so forth comes. Uh, but of course, there are different subjectivities, and he uh, has a, a quasi evolutionary understanding that it's the predator species fighting against predator species for dominance, but we also see the vast majority of others as kind of sheep and, and, and prey type animals, and we look at them with contempt. Uh, but that is this conflict of predator types. That are willing to use others for their own events and to use other predator types who are strong in the contest to demonstrate uh, and to bring out the higher type in themselves that's how history advances and so the nazis loved those themes in nietzsche so absolutely here's a philosopher influencing practical politics uh, a generation after his death now what we can learn is Uh, This goes back to the issue about the left and the right labeling. I would say that if we're going to move on in understanding what's going on in the 21st century, there is a resurgence of a certain kind of right that is more nationalistic. And what it is arguing that what we need to do is channel our identity with our people, with our ethnic group, uh that you're not primarily an individual you are a member of this group and that groups need to understand that they are in contestation with the other groups around the world that we're not all going to be free traders and cosmopolitan and so a certain segment of the right is going in that direction uh and there is of course the left including the postmodern left and they are much more wrapped up in identity politics and victim politics Uh, and they don't uh, uh, agree with the right obviously but they have the same irrationalist and contesting and conflictual or understanding of the way the world works so that kind of right and that kind of left are in collision with each other but there is a very third distinct type and that is the the classically liberal that needs an updating (laughs) where we genuinely believe that human beings are rational and they should be decent that we should be peaceful, and that we should trade with each other, and that's going to require a certain amount of tolerance. So at a minimum, we have a three-way battle culturally going on. Politics is a manifestation of that, but I really think it's a cultural values battle first.
1: The government that I was part of for a long time, our leader often used to say that we were uh, the repository in this country of uh, classic liberalism and of conservatism. And I think one of the things that a conservative would have brought to that argument would, to say, would be to say, uh, we're all, we should never lose sight of human nature, that we're all a mixture of good and bad. We can all make good choices, all make bad choices. The classic liberal would say, as you've just done, we've got to play to our better angels, mm. so to speak, yeah. and create as far as possible uh, an understanding about individual responsibility, responsibility to one another. Mm-hmm uh and uh, not look to excessive government but that comes back to the issue we're outsourcing so much of our conscience and our responsibility now to government and its instruments Mm -hmm.
0: well the first yeah there's two things uh, built into your your good question there yeah the first is uh, the point about human nature and that if we are going to design uh or set principles in place for Healthy civil society and healthy politics. It has to be based on a proper understanding of human nature and that means We have to do good philosophy. It really is a philosophical battle. What what is constant in human nature? What is changeable in human nature? What capacities do we have? What weaknesses do we have? And only to the extent that we get that right will we uh have principles in place that will enable human beings to, to flourish, to flourish the best. So uh, absolutely uh, a philosophical battle has to go on. But what we then have right now, and this is part of the outsourcing point that goes on here, is that one of those issues of human nature is, do you think, as a matter of human beings, uh, human nature rather, that human beings do have a powerful capacity for agency? that I can decide I'm going to think for myself and formulate my own beliefs, that I have all of these passions and desires, that I can train my emotions and self-regulate my emotions, and that behaviorally, uh, whatever I think and feel, I am the one who pushes the trigger or steps on the gas, and I take then responsibility for my actions. So to the extent that you think, human beings as individuals do have this, powerful capacity for agency, that has a moral implication. You're going to see human beings as moral agents, and you will expect them to take full responsibility for good or for bad, for what they think, for what they say, for what they do, and the fruits of their labors for good or bad will, will belong to them. And then that will have political implications as well. So then you will say, if we think that individuals are powerfully agents, then we want a government that individuals do for themselves. Now we'll do that socially, but that almost always comes out in some sort of Democratic Republican politics. You have your ideas and your goals. I have my ideas and my goals. To a large extent, we go off our own separate ways and we do our things, but of course we want to come together for lots of various things. So we have to have lots of discussion, find common ground, compromise when we can compromise, and uh, we'll just have then uh, whatever rules that are going to be commonly in place will be ones that we are going to do it. So democracy is really a do-it-yourself kind of political system, but it depends on a strong sense of individual agency. Now, if though you have a very different understanding of human nature, you don't believe in human agency. You think that what people think is conditioned into them by the social forces that they are born into that there's a linguistic version of this. We all learn different languages, but built into the grammars of different languages are are very different assumptions about the way the world works. But human beings are born into different language groups and they're never going to be able to think objectively about the way the world is or even communicate meaningfully with people in other language groups. So that's going to be one variation. And that's a philosophical issue that's been powerfully advocated in the 20th century and it feeds into our our positions right now. If you think that people are born into different economic circumstances, and again those different economic circumstances dramatically mold people into different kinds of beings, then you're going to have a class warfare understanding. The classes will never be able to understand each other. And they don't even have the same economic issues. If you think it's a matter of ethnicity, not so much economics, that you're born into an ethnic group, and language might be a part of that, economic issues might be a part of that, but rather it is your you know, your, your Polish ethnicity or your Korean ethnicity that gets deep and that shapes who you are. And so first and foremost, you're not an individual, but rather you're a Korean or you're a Pole or whatever. Then again, you're going to have a different understanding of Uh, where values
1: come from, and so forth, in a
0: different kind of politics. So is this at
1: heart the problem arising out of identity politics? It is. It is. Yes, so
0: uh, this is why uh, I think the the philosophical debate over volition versus determinism is, is fundamental. It's not an accident that all of the classical liberals were strong believers in volition, individual moral responsibility. The Marxists are pure environmental determinists. Uh, the the, the Saper-Whorf hypothesis, linguistically, that I just threw out, mm. very powerful in, uh, in linguistics. American pragmatism of the John Dewey variety, very much a collectivized understanding of, of, of human formation and anti-individualistic. And I think it's also important to emphasize the biological versions of this as well. So if you are, uh, 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 for example, take Freudian psychology, which is very biologically based that we have as human beings instincts that have been bred into us in varying degrees. Well, you're not really an individual with any sort of autonomy to think about it. Rather, you know your, your individual rational agency and your moral agency is just this very thin civilizational veneer that's lain over underlying instinctual, biological
1: drives pretty and to, sad and low view of human life, well it uh, is. your fellow humans really what identity politics has produced certainly in this country is a desertion of the idea that we ought to celebrate and participate in freedom and if we're responsible we will look for people who are still being marginalized and try and include them you know, out of a generosity of spirit yes. and doing what you ought to do by your neighbour because, you know, that's the right thing to do, to a situation now where we say to people, well, you have rights. Uh, but by the way, they're uh, clashing rights, so you've got to compete for your rights. Mm-hmm. And so we've set up all of this discrimination uh, and anti-discrimination legislation in this country over the last nearly 60 years now mm-hmm. uh, and... Uh, uh, you know, and you have your rights basically determined by technocrats increasingly, mm. including in the legal profession and in the courts, uh, and so now we have to go and compete for our rights. Somehow mm. it's very counterintuitive. Yeah. It's nowhere near as noble mm. as saying we'll celebrate freedom, we'll exercise freedom, and we'll try and create the greatest freedoms possible for ourselves and everyone around us. Yeah. Well, Or is that just too simplistic?
0: Well, uh no, that's a good, very good summary of uh, some complex territory. So the core concept of rights there, what happened in the 1960s? And I would say this was a perversion, but there was a transmutation in the understanding of what a right was. So in the, old, uh, in the tradition of rights, uh, you know, a right is a, is a freedom. It's a protection of the individual. I have a right to my life and you have an equal right to your life. That then is to say, I'm in control of my I'm not a subject of the king. I am a citizen. in a a society. I can't dispose of your life, you can't dispose of it. It's a a self-control position. I have a right to liberty, I have a right to action, and you have a right to action. And of course at certain points uh, we might collide, but then we will have mechanisms in place to decide who should have the right. To, uh, to move in that or I have a right to my property. So if I have created some value in the world, I have stakes and claim, I've made some resources uh, uh, more productive, uh, I have a right to the product of my, of my labor. And none of those are, are contesting rights because then they're saying that uh, you know, my body, my life and, and my productivity belong to me and equally the same can be said, said for you. What happened, though, is the older uh, concept of entitlements or uh, uh, charity or philanthropy. Then we say, well, what do we do about the people who are not keeping up or who have fallen behind? And we might think we have some sort of obligation to give to them, to help them out and so forth. So we would call that philanthropy or we might call that charity. But then that starts to sound a little bit demeaning, right? And so we don't want to say that these are charity cases. So rather than saying, I I am giving to you or we are giving to you as a society, as a matter of philanthropy, that you really are entitled to this. You're, You're entitled to a piece of the social pie whether you have uh, contributed to it or not, and then that entitlement starts to be called a right. You have a right to it. Now, once you go down that road, then, of course, rights start to clash because if I have fallen by the wayside and I'm not earning my own way in the world for whatever reason, uh, but I have nonetheless a right to other people giving to me, then that is an infringement on you. That is to say that your productivity belongs to me to some extent. Now, naturally you don't necessarily want your productivity to belong to me by right. And so you're going to uh, contest that to some extent. So I'm asserting I have a right to this and you're saying you have a right to your property, then we have a collision. And then that set of rights sets you up for a collision
1: understanding of rights. There's a lot of our young people who are not fooled. Mm. They're not taken in by this they're actually looking almost for a verification for what they instinctively feel is, is, is right, a better way, that our foundational sort of uh, cultural foundations are relevant and shouldn't be thrown away. Mm. I think there's a tremendous opportunity there if we can just set those younger people free mm. to respond to what they instinctively recognise is right and wrong. Yeah. Well, no, am I being naive? No, not
0: at all. And I think this goes back to a human nature issue. There is built into human nature, a, a life drive. And when you are young, it is natural to see your whole life ahead of you and to feel that vigor of youth, that you've got this unlimited energy uh, to, to want to go for and to make something. And unless that is destroyed in you when you're young, I think that will naturally out. It's a natural human growth imperative. So they show up in universities, um, uh, they want something, they're there for a reason. And this is partly why I'm optimistic, even though many sectors of the universities are deeply unhealthy, uh, those sectors of the universities are not offering to young people what young people want. They will attract some young people who are already unhealthy I don't want to get too psychological, but you know, there's a chicken and egg issue here about whether bad philosophy makes people sicker right? or whether sicker people are attracted to bad philosophy. It can go either way, but by and large people come in, they are healthy. They want something, they're looking for guidance. They're putting together their philosophy of life, deciding their career goals, looking for love and romance and adventure and all of that stuff. And they will find other individuals, Uh, among their students and among the professors who will offer that to them. So I think there will be a built-in market correction within the universities. And you see that already because if the students are the customers Mm. and the the university is the business offering a a service here, uh, enrollments will decline in some departments and uh, those professors then won't be in a position to lobby within the university for promotions, for more grants, and so on. Uh, In many cases, uh, if the university is paying attention to financial bottom lines, those lines will not be replaced. Those departments might be shuttered. Uh, In which case, uh, those those faculty positions are 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 lessened. So, I think the 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 natural health and aspiration of young people is is something to be drawn. So, as you put it, as long as you provide them, you know, not only healthy food but healthy things for their mind, they will expand. They will take off, and uh, we will continue to grow. At the same time, I'm optimistic because within universities. you know there are always first-rate people and second-rate people and third-rate people and so on. I think one of the reasons why universities have been able to become as dysfunctional as they have is that the first-rate people in almost all of the disciplines don't pay very much attention to what goes on in the rest of the university. They're focused on their work. They don't want to be bothered by committees, by faculty politics, and so on. So the, they just focus on their work, but that does leave a vacuum for people who are careerist in other directions. And they take over the curriculum committees and the guest speaker invitation committees and this, that, and the other thing. Uh, and then they mess things up and then it starts to hit the, the fan, it hits the press, and, but then also the first rate people start to realize, hey, the, the institution that I joined, it's got these problems and so on. And they say, okay, I'm going to take a certain amount of my time to start to deal with the problems in my university or in my my, my academic profession, more broadly speaking. That's what we're starting to see in the last five, six, seven years or so. So once the first-rate people join the battle inside the university, I think there's no question. First-rate minds versus third-rate minds. First-rate minds that really want to get stuff done versus third-rate minds in the grip of a failing theory over the course of a generation now things move slowly in the academic world. So it'll be a nasty battle for a generation or so. But I think we will prevail.
1: Well, (laughs) thank you for giving us something of your first rate mind and the enormous uh, good cheer and humanity that comes with it. It's terrific that you've been in Australia. And uh, uh, I know that what I'll get now is a whole lot of commentary. I wish I could think and speak like that father does. So thank you very Uh, much indeed. A great pleasure talking with you. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further
1: content, visit johnanderson.net.au.